0: Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now... Here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much, Mr. announcer, for that lovely introduction. Welcome to you, voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, uh, I want to do... Uh, a book that I I sort of have been overlooking Uh, not because I don't like it. It's just that I don't, I don't recognize it as a top shelf uh, story. I I mean, it's okay. And it's, it's sci-fi and it's, it's written by a guy by the name of Louis Edward Rosas. And I'm going to play for you um, two things. Basically, uh, a summarization of the author and the story and then later on i'll play chapter 1 or part or most of chapter 1 anyway so i will be right back after this our farmers agreed to make soup on two conditions more flavor less can that's why we load all four varieties of hearty spoonfuls with delicious birds eye vegetables chicken pasta or rice, then we freeze it to lock in the freshest tastes. So good, it'll change the way you think about soup. Bird's eye. Okay, we're back. You know what? I'm going to make a little change here. Uh, instead of starting the book uh, a little bit later at chapter one, I'm going to start it at chapter two, because what I'm going to do right now is play you uh, a little information uh, about the author first, and then there's going to be a bit of a space, uh, a little bit of a pause, and then it's going to go into a summary of the story. And I just think uh, starting with Chapter 2 will be a good idea. So, first of all, you're going to hear some information about the author, and then a little bit about the story. Here it is. Louis Rosas. American Mishima author Louis Edward Rosas is the son of Mexican immigrants whose father served in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. In his youth, he grew up on war films and military aviation in the seaside plains of Oxnard, California, where he watched vintage warplanes fly as they filmed various World War II dramas by the Oxnard Airport but it was Akira Kurosawa's samurai epic, Ran, that changed his views on war while creating a lasting impression of Japanese culture. Inspired by Yukio Mishima, Lewis would go on to study Japanese history, language, and swordsmanship before creating the first of many works. Millions of miles from the nearest human outpost, the gold-laden deep-space merchant vessel Fortin has been hijacked of her cargo in an act of space piracy on her return flight back to Earth. After narrowly escaping to the surface of Eros 3117, commercial flight engineer Mike Connors has found himself marooned and in dire need of medical attention in a place where human life cannot exist. With hours remaining on his dwindling oxygen supply, he must face the alien unknown in the fight of his life. Enter the Ishimaru, a fabled ghost ship of the past, where one cannot distinguish reality from an oxygen-starved fantasy. It is here that one man will fight to survive alone in a hostile world far from home. And now, without further ado, this is Louis Edward Rosa's book, Ishimaru, Chapter 2 Chapter 2 A Hard Landing The silent vacuum of space gave way to the fiery flames enveloping the small window view of Connor's escape pod as it pierced through the thin atmosphere of Eros 3117. The turbulence of re-entry shook the small escape pod and its sole occupant as he braced himself inside. I always said to myself I hoped I would never have to actually use one of these things. But here I am, Connors said to himself. As the shaking became more extreme, Connors hit the descent computer's interactive key. What's the time of descent? he asked. At this angle of descent, your reentry time will be four minutes of atmospheric burn before final descent, replied the computer. Great! The tiny escape pod punched through the upper edges of the thin atmosphere like a fiery meteor with Connors clenching his teeth and holding on for dear life inside. It was then that he remembered during his training being taunted by the only man he had ever met with a multi-cluster Mars orbital assault badge. He recalled the legendary Howling Mad Jack Evans, who had made the most Mars insertion drops, conquering what was commonly known as the Six Minutes of Terror. Five times. For most people, just one orbital assault landing alone, or descent via escape pod, would be enough to last a lifetime. Connors recalled how he, along with his class, were strapped in their training module seats in Earth orbit before the drop when this certified madman unbuckled his restraints and stood up and howled at the moon as they made their fiery descent. The entire duration lasted under one stress filled minute. In one sense, Connors assumed he was trying to inspire the class. But at the time, it seemed more like he was rubbing it in that he could outhandle anything an orbital drop insertion reentry could throw at him better than anyone in Connors class. Six minutes of terror, he thought. The time remaining? he asked. Ninety seconds remaining, replied the computer. I can do this, he proclaimed. Yeah. I can do this. I just got to hold on, he repeated. Suddenly, a red flashing light became active on the small descent computer panel. Connors immediately hit the flashing light button. Recalculating descent. You now have 180 seconds remaining. Total estimated reentry time has been recalculated to six minutes, relayed the computer. Six minutes? Oh, hell no, he exclaimed. As Connors gripped tightly onto his restraints, he realized that he was making the equivalent of a Mars rapid insertion drop that is only done in combat or emergency situations, which were similar to the first human landing on the planet, before the reentry process for advanced interplanetary travel became more refined. The thought of having to do something like that, short of combat, was insane, not to mention downright dangerous. The fiery glow quickly diminished to the sounds of winds, but he was far from being out of danger during his rapid descent. The escape pod pierced the small planetoid skies. A loud pop could be heard as the descent air brakes and primary descent chute deployed, following by high-altitude popping in Connor's ears. The flashing lights of the altimeter blinked in rapid succession, measuring the escape pod's rapid descent. At 300 meters, the heat shield was jettisoned and the landing airbags deployed to cushion the landing. But despite the added safety measure, this was no guarantee. Even under the best of conditions, this sometimes led to disaster on rocky terrains with serious injuries and fatalities. Warning, secondary descent chute deployment failure. Emergency backup chute deployment failure alerted the escape pod computer. This was a dangerous situation to be in while hurtling down at supersonic speeds. With the secondary chute failing to deploy, the primary chute was in danger of shredding, leaving the escape pod hurtling towards the surface like a missile. Shit, he thought. Connors hit the release for the emergency airbags that encompassed the remaining surface areas of the small capsule-shaped escape pod. Brace for impact, warned the escape pod computer. Connors took a deep breath as he nervously tucked into his head in low as he could, while strapped into his seat. All he could do was count the seconds and hold on for dear life. As the dread of impact raced towards him, it became more unbearable with every turbulent second as he looked out the small circular window, noting the fast rotation of the spinning escape pod. He had never had to use an escape pod before, and hoped he would never have to, especially so far from home as the escape pod continued downward in its fast, violent descent. He thought of Aya's last performance at the Kyoto Concert Hall as she played a haunting rendition of Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune on a beautiful black Steinway grand piano before members of the imperial family and a host of international celebrities and local dignitaries. Connors thought back to that proud moment in an attempt to calm his mind during the terrifying descent into the unknown. This transported his mind from his state of dread to that of near-tranquil bliss, where he pictured Aya sitting at the piano in her long, white formal dress as her fingers touched the keys, captivating the audience while the escape pod continued its violent, fiery descent. The melody played on in his mind as the descent became far more precarious. Despite his newfound calm, the rapidly descending escape pod was not slowing down. It was coming in too fast for a safe landing, sending Connors down into an uncertain fate. With the prospect of doom looming ever closer, he closed his eyes and imagined seeing Aya playing the last notes of her concert as the computer relayed its final warning. Impact in three, two, one, boom! Suddenly everything had gone black. Dust. A fine haze of shiny black dust filled the thin air of the crash site as stars appeared overhead. Connors opened his eyes to find himself lying flat on his back. He had been thrown from the crashed escape pod as it hit a large outcropping of rock, breaking the small capsule apart. Somehow, Connors was still alive. As the smoke and dust cleared, the first thing he thought of that came to his mind was his former instructor howling Mad Jack Evans as he smiled before the terrified classmates looking about each other in relief that their terror-filled ordeal was over. "'Congratulations! You're now qualified for the Mars Orbital Assault Badge,' proclaimed Connors as he laughed to himself. "'Yes,' He was still alive. As Connor's sense of relief and adrenaline tapered off, he tried to prop himself up, but this would be no easy task. He soon discovered that this would take a degree of resolve, given his yet undiagnosed injuries. He could feel a deep, sharp pain from both his lower back and his left leg. Oh, this is no good, he exclaimed. He could still hear a ringing in his ears and the sense that his injuries were far worse than he could feel. For him, there was only one way to be sure. Connors would have to follow crash protocols and activate his small ESC, emergency survival computer, that was strapped to his left wrist over the arm of his LSS suit. Let's hope this thing is working. Connors tapped the emergency survival computer to activate it, but remained unresponsive. Come on, baby, work. The timing could not be more critical. His space helmet was slowly filling with condensation, and his core body temperature was starting to drop. Come on, come on, damn you, he gasped. Suddenly, after a dozen or so tries tapping the activation button, he made one last attempt with a hard thump with his hand clenched. As if meant to be, the small lights of the wrist attachment suddenly came to life, To Connors' relief, a male voice with an unexpected soft English accent began to speak. Your emergency survival computer has now been activated. Your emergency location beacon has now been activated. Medical triage scan has now been initiated. Connors drew a big sigh of relief as he could see the emergency beacon in what appeared to be sand several feet away with its small, flashing indicator light flickering on and off in successive motion. It was a standard complement to any off-world crash kit, which luckily had not been lost or destroyed in the impact. Without it, any survivor's chance of rescue would be next to nothing. Its long-range pulse frequency could be detected by a passing ship in high orbit, high enough to make the critical difference between life or death. The trick now was for someone aboard a passing ship to pick up the signal and send for help. Connors looked to his ESC and could see the medical scan was nearing completion. Med status? he asked. You have two broken ribs, one pelvic fracture, one leg fracture, and one minor head concussion. You will need medical attention upon rescue. No kidding. (coughs) "'said Connors as he coughed. "'Please remain still and lie on your back.' "'Connors laughed to himself. "'Well, I could have figured that one out for myself,' he exclaimed. "'ESC analysis concludes atmosphere inhospitable for human conditions, "'recommending that you remain in your LSS "'with your helmet firmly secured. "'Tell me something I don't already know.' Connors' LSS suit had stabilized with his internal temperature and reduced the condensation in his space helmet, but medically speaking, he was in seriously bad shape. But the true severity of his situation was about to become more abundantly clear. Confirm location, requested Connors. You are currently within the equatorial spectrum of Eros 3117. Shit! he cursed. Connors knew very well where he had landed, but somehow in his mind he had hoped he had arrived somewhere else. Stuck on a rock in the Quad 3's. Great. As dictated by the International Standard Crash Protocols, Connors needed to verify that his ESC could confirm which astral body he had landed on and hope there was any information on the ESC's vast micro-database, of the planetoid he was marooned on. So, tell me about this rock I am on, asked Connors. No viable vegetation or known life-forms exist on Eros 3117. There is a pocket of methane pools and ice 500 kilometers away, suitable for H2O conversion. The ice detected here requires a water-refinement treatment plant cycle for... "'Human consumption. Great. "'Like I happen to have a water refinement plant in my back pocket. "'A lot of use that information will do.' "'With his space helmet on, "'there was no way to rub the throbbing pain at his temple.' "'How much air do I have?' asked Connors. "'There is a minor damage to your left O2 processor. "'Standard LSS survival time is seven days.' "'you have less than 119 hours remaining for rescue.' "'The news of Connors' shortened life expectancy "'dimmed his hope of holding out in time for a rescue. "'There is another problem,' added the ESC. "'What else could go wrong?' asked Connors. "'The damage to your left O2 processor "'has left you an unequaled mix "'which over time will bottom out with nitrogen.' Combined with your concussion, you may be subject to blackouts and hallucinations. Connors, upon hearing this revelation, made a big sigh as he began to black out. Great. Blackouts and hallucinations, he says, muttered Connors as he began to black out. And there stretched out upon the dark sands of Eros 3117, under a canopy of stars, lay Flight Engineer Connors of the DSMV Fortin, dreaming of his beautiful Japanese concert pianist playing her signature rendition of Clair de Lune, all alone in the near dark, while he waited for a passing ship to pick up his emergency beacon and come to his rescue. Meanwhile, back on Earth, that early morning at the Osaka University Hospital in Osaka, Japan, a flurry of activity had taken place in what was now being called the Itami Air Disaster. There on the seventh floor... The big white doors flung open, revealing a freshly mopped hospital floor as the twin pairs of polished black military boots marched out from the hallway, leading from the elevators to the ICU waiting room. These were officers of the JASDF, Japan Air Space Defense Force, formerly known as the Japan Air Self-Defense Force wearing their dark blue Class A uniforms under their damp black trench coats, still wet from the morning's rains outside. They both wore their officers' caps wrapped in a plastic rain protector, with one carrying a briefcase. Retired Major Hiroshi Matsumura had been sitting in the ICU waiting room all night with little sleep when he noticed the two JASDF officers standing at the doorway. Major Matsumura? I... "'replied Hiroshi. "'The two JASDF officers came to "'and stood at attention and saluted. "'No need to salute me, Captain. "'I am a civilian now,' said Hiroshi, "'as he saluted back. "'Forgive our intrusion, sir. "'I am Captain Yamazaki, "'and this is Lieutenant Kodomo. "'We received an urgent message from Yoruba Station, "'which monitors all outbound intersystem communication traffic revealed Yamazaki. Lieutenant Kodomo then opened the briefcase. He produced a large vanilla envelope, which he passed to Captain Yamazaki to present with both hands to Hiroshi. Hiroshi Matsumura quickly opened the envelope and pulled out the white paper dispatch with the red kanji lettering at the top of the page for urgent. A look of astonishment and disbelief filled his tired eyes. He could not believe what he was reading. The American husband of your sister, Aya Matsumura, had listed you as an emergency contact in here, in Osaka. We were unaware that she was injured in the Itami Air Disaster. We wish her a speedy recovery, said Captain Yamazaki. Arigato gozaimasu, thanked Hiroshi. Your sister's American husband, Mike Connors, is listed as missing, revealed Yamazaki. How? asked Hiroshi. We still have few details. All we know is that someone on his ship activated its distress beacon at 1935 hours EWT. From what we understand, an escape pod was launched. A minute later, the ship's transponder and emergency beacon ceased transmitting. We believe the American merchant vessel is bearing the designation DSMV Fortin, was destroyed somewhere in the Quad 3s region of space near the Morton Fields at 1936 Hours EWT. The timing of this event could not be worse. Hiroshi Matsumura appeared stunned as his elder father, Shintaro Matsumura, himself a retired JASDF colonel and former F-40J hyperjet pilot, and his mother, Mrs. Fuyumi Matsumura, entered the ICU waiting room. "'Good morning, sir.' Good morning, Mrs. Matsumura, saluted Captain Yamazaki. Thank you, Captain. What seems to be the trouble? asked the elder Matsumura. There has been an incident, said Hiroshi. An incident? remarked the Matsumura senior. Hai, Mike-san has gone missing, replied Hiroshi. Missing? asked the stunned former colonel. Is anyone looking for him? asked Fayumi. Hai. There are five ships, including one from Japan, taking part in an internal search effort for survivors. But time is critical, and the probability that we will find survivors is very slim in such a vast region of space, explained Captain Yamazaki. I understand, replied Hiroshi, as he passed the urgent dispatch, contained in the envelope for his father to read. As a matter of professional courtesy... We can offer you a seat on a scheduled military transport to Europa Station, offered Captain Yamazaki. When does it leave? asked Hiroshi. It leaves Atsugi Naval Air Station at 1100 hours. If you wish to accept our offer, you must come with us right away, offered Captain Yamazaki. Hiroshi Matsumura sighed deeply as he looked out of the frosted ICU waiting room window to the cold grey morning rains outside contemplating Captain Yamazaki's offer, to leave his family behind on Earth, to go forth to Europa Station. Hiroshi had to take careful consideration, given the haze of both sudden shock and the wake of a late night full of worry and zero sleep. Out of respect and cultural tradition, Hiroshi looked to his father for approval, before making a decision. Hiro, you go, urged Shintaro. "'Find Mike-san. Bring him back to Osaka. "'We will contact his family in California and manage here,' assured his mother Fuyumi, "'Hi. Hey, I will do my best,' said Hiroshi. "'With a quick bow to his parents, Hiroshi Matsumura rushed out of the intensive care unit waiting room "'with Captain Yamazaki and Lieutenant Kodomo. "'A black JASDF staff car awaited them in the emergency room parking zone down below.' They quickly drove off before zooming aboard an awaiting military chopper that would take him to Atsugi Naval Air Station to catch the Europa station-bound transport. Meanwhile, back out in deep space, a small flotilla of deep space rescue ships from the United States, European Space Agency, and Japan conducted a search in the vast region of space for any survivors of the DSMV Fortin the first ship to reach the edge of the Quad 3's region of Morton Field Claim area, closed in on the Fortin's last known position. As done in times past, a call to all vessels in the area to assist in search and rescue efforts was made. Aboard the USD SRV, U.S. Deep Space Rescue Vessel, Red Adair, so named after a famous 20th century firefighter, its crew continued on 16 hours, into their search-and-rescue, SAR, mission. Communications officer John Kirby sat at his post holding an antique stopwatch in the red glare of his communication console. The 32-year-old veteran communications officer was about to be relieved from his shift when suddenly his instruments lit up, detecting what sounded like a faint distress beacon just as 24-year-old specialist Karen Johnson arrived, bearing a cup of coffee in hand, "'in order to relieve him. "'Say, Kirby, you should get some rack time. "'I can take it from here,' offered Johnson. "'No, wait. I think I got something,' said Kirby. "'Really? What is it?' asked Johnson. "'It's either a pulsar or a faint distress beacon,' guessed Kirby. "'Is that so? Let me give you a hand,' offered Johnson. "'John Kirby tried to adjust his instruments "'so to get a better fix on the faint distant signal "'as Specialist Johnson took her seat at the adjoining communications console. "'Deploy the high-gain receiver and point her 30 degrees right declination,' said Kirby. "'30 degrees right declination, sir,' repeated Johnson, as she looked up at the mission clock. "'Don't pay attention to that. You need to rely on instinct and a good set of ears,' said Kirby. "'Well, that's why I learned from the master,' complimented Johnson." The Red Adair's communications officers moved into high gear as they continued to make adjustments to get a fix on the faint signal's location when suddenly a semi-audible distress beacon broke through the crackle of static. Kirby instantly searched for the intercom to contact the bridge to report the new contact. DSC-COM, we've picked up a faint distress signal at 1,678,300 meters. Thirty degrees right declination, relayed Kirby. Bridge acknowledged. A second intercom called the communications station. Specialist Johnson picked up the hand receiver. DSC com, go for Johnson. Yes, Captain. We know that takes us further away from the Morton claim fields, but that's where Kirby says the signal is coming from. Relaying telemetry data now, answered Johnson. Kirby turned his head to Specialist Johnson and gestured for her to put the hand receiver down. Meanwhile, high up on the bridge of the USD SRV Red Adair, Captain Augustus Cole sat in his chair as he looked over the incoming data and confirmed with his executive officer. What do you think here, boss? asked Lieutenant Myers. I'd say let's call this in and take a closer look, suggested Captain Cole. Bridge to DSC Com. Send long-range mission update to Europa Control, communicated Lieutenant Myers. Ensign, take her in 30 degrees, right declination, nice and slow, ordered Captain Cole. Aye, Captain, sir, acknowledged the helmsman. Let's all remain vigilant and be on the lookout for debris. After all, we wouldn't want to be needing rescue ourselves, remarked Captain Cole. Yes, Captain, taking her in nice and slow, confirmed the ensign. Thirty minutes later, communications officer Kirby remained at his post, zeroing in on the faint incoming signal he had earlier acquired. Like an old-time submariner from the past, Kirby sat there hunched over his console in the near dark of his station, in the glare of his instruments. At his post, he diligently listened with his headphones to his ears in hopes of finding what his instruments could not hear. Between walls of static and the galactic noise, the faint distress beacon was difficult to pinpoint, particularly with the cacophony of sounds resonating metal-bearing bodies within the minefields and distant galactic noise from distant pulsars. Suddenly, a clear, audible communication blasted his eardrums. Whoa! he exclaimed. What is it? asked Specialist Johnson. I had this thing turned up all the way when another distress signal only louder burst through, replied Kirby, as he removed his headphones. Specialist Johnson called the bridge. DSC com. we have a second signal coming through, relayed Johnson. A second signal? asked Lieutenant Myers. Signal confirmed, she replied. Kirby reached for a relay button on his console and patched the audible body of the header signal so everyone on the bridge could hear it. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is the DSMV Fortin calling out on all frequencies. Come in, please. I repeat, this is the DSMV Fortin. We are adrift in our scout ship with limited supplies and need urgent rescue. Our ship has been hijacked. We'd like to report an act of space piracy. I repeat, this is the DSMV Fortin. Bridge to DSC-COM. This is the XO. Good job, guys. We'll take it from here, relayed Lieutenant Myers. DSC-COM. Thank you, sir, replied Kirby. "'Looks like you can stop your old-school ticking stopwatch "'and add another one for the books, wouldn't you say?' asked Johnson. "'An exhausted Kirby rubbed his tired eyes "'and thought about it for a moment. "'I don't know. "'It's too soon for me. "'I don't stop the clock until everyone has been accounted for, "'and right now we still don't know yet. "'We had two signals. "'The first signal came from further out,' remarked Kirby. "'Well, why don't you go get some rest?' You've been on watch for close to 20 hours now, advised Johnson. You're right. I'll go down to the galley and get a bite to eat. Afterward, I'll climb into my rack, replied Kirby. Hey, you've earned it, boss, said Johnson. Communications officer John Kirby got up from his post and pat Specialist Johnson on her left shoulder before saying, Always remember our motto. When someone drops the ball, we get the call, said both officers in unison. Before Kirby stepped away, he looked once more to his stopwatch and contemplated the resolution of the S.A.R. Say, do me a favor. Whatever the captain says about this S.A.R., keep the mission clock running until I say otherwise, requested Kirby. Will do, she replied. Meanwhile, up on the bridge, Lieutenant Myers opened the channel to the Fortin scout ship. D.S.M.V. Fortin, this is the SRV Red Adair hailing. Do you copy? Come in, please. This is the DSMV Fortin. We copy. Boy, are we happy to hear from you. With low supplies, we were starting to get desperate here, relayed Captain Page. It's our pleasure to help you. And that's what we get paid for. Your position has been locked in. We should be IVR in 15 mics, relayed Lieutenant Myers. A round of applause could be heard on the loudspeaker coming from the scout ship. Captain Cole appeared satisfied as he marked his entry into his logbook. He then turned to his flight engineer to check his mission status. "'What's our fuel situation?' he asked. "'We've got an hour before we hit bingo "'and have to return home, Captain, sir.' "'Satisfied that the Fortin's rescue was in the bag, "'the captain chose to address the crew. "'Now hear this. "'We have found the survivors of the Fortin. "'We shall pick them up in the next quarter hour "'and return home. "'I would just like to say, good job, everyone. "'This is the captain, out all about the ship.' Cheers could be heard throughout the decks of the cutter-sized Red Adair. But for one man, something wasn't right. Communications Officer John Kirby. He had spent hours contemplating the series of what-ifs that loomed in his head and weighed it against the statistics of a successful mission. None of this sat well with him as he tried to rest back in his rack. His years of experience on such dangerous long-range search and rescue missions had taught him differently. Though exhausted from his long watch, he could not help but wonder about the faint distress signal that loomed just beyond his communications range. Somewhere out there, that has to be a jettisoned escape pod operating on automatic, he thought. Kirby looked once more at his stopwatch still running as he slowly drifted off to sleep. And that was, of course, chapter two of Ishimaru by Louis Edward Rosas. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform. Or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover biz. As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.